Welcome back, Bible readers. This is week number three for the Rooted Podcast. Our reading for this week is going to come from Genesis chapter 34, verse 1, through Genesis 50, verse 26. And that concludes the book of Genesis for us. So that means within a period of um, two and a half weeks, I think, we have completely finished the book of Genesis, faithfully reading 85 to 100 verses each and every day. So we're on good track as we explore the rest of the book of Genesis today. We look forward to Exodus, which is another great book in the Old Testament coming up in the following weeks. Now, last week we were in the middle of the life and time of Jacob. Jacob and Esau were at a place where they could reconcile with one another. But Jacob was still afraid of his brother Esau and the revenge that he might take on him for stealing not only his birthright, but also his blessing that was given by his father Isaac. So at the end of chapter 33, we learn that Jacob had arrived in the town of Shechem. And he even bought a plot of land from the family of Hamor. And what this does, the end of chapter 33, it leads us right into the next chapter, 34, where we are told that a local prince whose name was Shechem, took an interest in Jacob and Leah's daughter, Dinah. Now, Dinah is often overshadowed by the 12 sons of Jacob, sons that would become fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. But here, in this text, in chapter 34, Dinah seems to be the focus. Now, this local prince, Shechem, who is Hamor's father, the same person that Jacob bought the plot of land from in chapter 33, he defiles Dinah, and this act causes two of Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, to go into an outrage. Now, Simeon and Levi are the second and third-born sons to Jacob. Now, what is surprising in this text as you read it through is Jacob's silence. You know, why didn't he bolt into action? Is there family politics going on here? I mean, Jacob loved Rachel, we know that, and her sons, Benjamin and Joseph. Jacob loved them dearly. But Dinah was a daughter of Leah, and Simeon and Levi were Leah's brothers. Maybe this is why Simeon and Levi took immediate action to help protect their daughter. Now, others have said the custom of the day required that those brothers act in concert with their father in making decisions concerning the family and that Jacob could not act alone, and that's why he waited. Whatever the case, Jacob's refusal to do what is right in regard to his family will encourage two of his sons to do something, something terrible in response. And the point is that when God-appointed heads of families do not take appropriate leadership, sometimes it can create a void, a void which is often filled sinfully, like in the story here in chapter 34. The rest of the story is that Simeon and Levi gained revenge by deceiving the Shechemites into being circumcised as the condition for Dinah's marriage. Then they murdered the men of the city who were incapacitated by circumcision, and all the sons of Jacob took part in plundering. They took everything. Now, this whole situation in chapter 34 could have been avoided if Jacob went to Bethel like God had told him to back in Genesis chapter 28 and Genesis 31. But Jacob chose 
to live in a place for all the wrong reasons. God called him to Bethel, and Jacob's poor choice of a place to live left his family open to ungodly influence. Now, it's hard to say how long Jacob would have stayed in Shechem if the Lord did not intervene. In chapter 35, God tells Jacob to get up and move your family to Bethel. Finally, Jacob listens as God intervenes. Jacob's family was in physical danger, and they needed to leave, not to mention the spiritual and moral decline. A family reformation definitely needed to take place in this story. Now, at the end of chapter 35, Rachel dies, giving birth to Benjamin, the final son of Jacob. And the text will list out the 12 sons of Jacob, along with his two wives and two concubines. In the close of chapter 35, we see Jacob returning to be with his father Isaac at his death. And guess what? Esau was there as well, giving us the indication that Jacob and Esau finally reconciled with each other at their father's death. As Esau shows up again in the text at the end of chapter 35, so chapter 36 is about Esau's descendants. So the two chapters are connected. It seems that this listing of descendants of Esau is to demonstrate God's faithfulness in multiplying Abraham's descendants as he had promised. Remember, the promise did go to Isaac, but Ishmael was also a descendant of Abraham. So God is faithful in multiplying Abraham's descendants. The descendants of Esau, later on in Scripture, we find their names are called the Edomites and the Amalekites. Now, from chapter 37 through chapter 50, the narrative now shifts to the favored son of Jacob, and his name is Joseph. Many of you know the story of Joseph, but in reading through Scripture, there are always nuggets of truth that you could have missed the first time around or quite in fact, the 30th time around. When Joseph was 17 years old, we are told that his brothers did not like him. And the main reason was because he was his father's favorite. Jacob didn't, excuse me, Joseph didn't do anything wrong. His father had given him a special coat, and Joseph had a dream that infuriated his brothers. Well, one day, as the story goes, when Joseph goes to find his brothers in a field, they decide to hatch a plan to kill him. Now Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, steps forward and offers up a better plan to just throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. Well, while Joseph was in the pit, his brothers see a caravan of Ishmaelites and seize on an opportunity. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, they say. And then Joseph is taken to Egypt. Now meanwhile, his brothers must have a cover story for Joseph's disappearance. And so they send his coat back to Jacob, stained with the blood of an animal. And Jacob is in so much anguish because of this. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to even live anymore because Joseph has been killed. Now in Egypt, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, the captain of the palace guard. And that chapter will come in chapter 39. But during the same time when Joseph was sold into slavery, another unusual incident takes place in chapter 38 with Judah and Tamar. And then the narrative will return to Egypt with Joseph. Now, the line of Judah is important because the line of Judah is where Christ would descend from. You've probably heard the scripture that says he or Christ is a lion from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, with this in mind, the text centers on the importance of Judah's son, 
Now stay with me. This is going to sound a bit like a soap opera here in this text. And the customs during these days can seem foreign to us. But trust me, there's a reason and a purpose why chapter 38 is here. The chapter starts out abruptly, telling us that Judah's first two sons were evil. So the Lord took both of their lives. Their names were Ur and Onan. Now Judah's third son, Shelah, was still young, according to verse 11 of chapter 38. And Judah instructs his daughter-in-law, whose name is Tamar, to go home and remain a widow until Shelah grows old, old enough to marry Tamar. Well, time passes, and Shelah had grown up, and there had been no arrangements for he and Tamar to get married. Also, Judah's wife dies. So there is no possibility of any more descendants at the current time from the line of Judah. Now that's important and that's a big deal. So Tamar takes the initiative in keeping the line of Judah alive. She removes her widow's clothes and she lured Judah into prostitution. Judah planned to pay Tamar, but until a payment could be delivered, in this case it was a goat, she demanded his personal seal and its cord, which he wore around his neck and his staff. These would guarantee her safety in the event that she became pregnant and was condemned to death for harlotry. So three months later, Judah is informed that Tamar was pregnant as a result of harlotry. As head of the family, Judah had to deal with the situation. Now, legally, Tamar belongs to Shelah, even though Judah had not arranged the marriage yet. So when Judah confronts Tamar, she shows him Judah's signet and staff. And so Judah admits his involvement, as well as his greater sin, in not giving Tamar to Shelah as he had promised. Tamar gives birth to two sons, Perez and Zerah whose struggle in the womb is similar to the story we read about Jacob and Esau and their struggle in the womb. Now, Tamar took the initiative in preserving the line of Judah from dying out by her actions. Now, as strange and foreign as they might seem to us today, that was the purpose. However, we know that God uses strange methods and sinful people to accomplish his purposes in the most unlikely places. By the way, If you know your genealogy well, then you know that Tamar is included in the genealogy listing of Christ's lineage in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Well, now that the tribe of Judah has a future, the narrative shifts back to Joseph in Egypt. In chapter 39, we find Joseph is established in the house of Potiphar as a trusted steward. He is in charge of all of Potiphar's possessions and the management of his household. Joseph does not allow himself to harbor bitterness by the treatment of his brothers, nor did he allow his spirit to be enslaved by captivity. He refused to let his circumstances dictate his trust in God. Perhaps he often reflected back to the dream he had when he was young. Well, as the story continues, Potiphar's wife starts making advances towards Joseph, and she ultimately lies about Joseph, falsely accusing him to her husband. This accusation lands Joseph in prison with the Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. But even in prison, Joseph rises to a role of leadership once again, being put in charge of all the prisoners. 
Years later, after the cupbearer had been restored to serving in the king's court, Pharaoh has a dream that he needs interpreting, and Joseph's name is remembered by the cupbearer. A quick summary of chapter 41 tells us that Joseph successfully interprets the Pharaoh's dreams, and he rises to power in Egypt, second in command of all of Egypt at the age of 30. Now in chapter 42, the narrative shifts back to the story of Jacob and his sons. The famine that Joseph had predicted in Pharaoh's dream was affecting the whole area. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain. But immediately, Joseph recognizes his brother. And if you were to read chapters 43, 44, and 45, you find that they're all about Joseph's testing of his brothers. You see, Joseph needs to know if his brothers have changed before he reveals his identity to them. His brothers had done some despicable things, and he wanted to ensure that his brothers had indeed changed. And that's the purpose for all that testing that goes back and forth there in chapters 43, 44, and 45. Right after Judah delivers a speech to Joseph at the end of chapter 44, the text says that Joseph could not stand it any longer. He could not keep himself composed. Towards the end of chapter 45, Pharaoh is informed about the situation with Joseph and his family and how he has been reunited with his brothers. And he extends an invitation for Jacob to move along with all his family to Egypt and to live in the land of Goshen. And after they are settled, Joseph informs Pharaoh and Pharaoh wants to meet Jacob. And so the two meet, and Pharaoh blesses Jacob, giving him the best part of the land. Now, while all this is going on, the land is still in famine. And so at the end of chapter 47, Joseph continues to execute his task of leader and manager during a time of famine. Chapter 47 shows the wisdom and and the business savvy that Joseph had in not only meeting the people's needs during the famine, but also continuing to make Pharaoh rich. And I'm sure that Pharaoh appreciated that. If you have ever studied the story of Joseph, then you've probably noticed the many similarities that Joseph has with the life of Christ. And you can't help but see the similarities in this section. Both Jesus and Joseph were loved by their fathers. Both Jesus and Joseph were sent to their brethren. Both Jesus and Joseph were rejected by their brethren. Both Jesus and Joseph were falsely accused. Both were put into prison. Both were exalted after their suffering. Both offered forgiveness. And lastly, but surely not least, is that both were saviors to their people. And there are many other similarities that we could pull out, but those are the few that I wrote down just to show you how even the life of Joseph is still intricately connected with the life of Jesus. And every page in Scripture, whether it's Genesis or whether it's Leviticus or whether it's Deuteronomy 
or Samuel or Chronicles or Ezra or Nehemiah, every page in Scripture is connected to this story, the story about the redemption that Christ would provide for all of mankind. Chapters 48 through 50 wrap up the book of Genesis. Having reached an advanced age and knowing his death was near, Jacob first blessed the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, and then his own sons and their descendants in chapter 49. Of all the magnificent prophetic blessings of Jacob on his sons, the blessing of Judah is the most theologically significant one, for it identifies Judah as the tribe through which Christ would come. Judah was the fourth-born son of Jacob. Now, earlier in the text of Genesis, namely chapters 34 and 35, Reuben, the firstborn, Simeon, the secondborn, and Levi, the thirdborn, had disqualified themselves. And Judah received the leadership of the tribes and the blessing that normally went to the firstborn. You see, this is how the leadership of the tribes and the messianic line fell to Judah, because the line of Judah was the line through which Christ would come. So if we go backwards in the book of Genesis, this is what we get. We go from Judah to Jacob, back to Isaac, back to Abraham. Then the genealogy in Genesis 11 takes us from Abraham back to Shem, which is Noah's son. And then the genealogy in Genesis 5 takes us from Noah's son back to Seth in Genesis chapter 3. Returning to the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, Jacob charged his sons to bury him in the patriarchal tombs at Machpelah. So Jacob dies and he is embalmed according to the Egyptian practice. Now Joseph and his brothers then carried their father's body to Canaan for burial according to his wishes. But with their father gone, Joseph's brothers feared that he might avenge himself against them for their past treatment of him. But Joseph was quick to remind them what they meant for harm God had turned into good. And now with the sons of Jacob living in Egypt, the next Bible book, Exodus, picks up where Genesis leaves off. But much time passes between the books. So that brings us to the end of our reading for this week. It also brings us to the end of our reading for the entire book of Genesis. So there is a lot that's happened in these two and a half weeks that we've been reading the book of Genesis. I mean, we started with uh, creation, creation of the worlds by God, uh, the flood, the fall that's there. We talked about the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we've just talked about the life of Joseph. And the book of Genesis is important because it keeps that redemption story alive and keeps that line of Christ alive. And as we get into the book of Exodus, the term redemption is going to take on an even more important meaning because as God delivers or redeems his people out of bondage in Egypt, he's going to lead them to the promised land. And so that theme of redemption is a big deal in the book of Exodus. In fact, a lot of New Testament authors, when they refer to redemption, they often refer back to the Exodus event. Well, that's all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed a review of your reading for the week. Don't forget to send any questions to Bible reading at lmbc.org, and I will try to answer them in a timely fashion. 
I also want to remind you that now we have the podcast available on the main church website. You can go to lmbc.org slash rooted, and that will take you right to the page on the main website. Or you can choose to listen to the podcast on your phone um, through the LMBC app. Open up that LMBC app, and the series Rooted is right on the first page there. You will continue to get emails if you're in our email list when the latest podcast is uploaded. But if you've not listened to the older ones and want to listen to those, you can feel free to go to the church website or the church app to listen to the podcast. I will talk to you guys next week. Keep up your reading each and every day because each and every day as we read God's Word, we get rooted.